Well, good morning. It's good to see you on this Memorial Day weekend, and really glad you're here. If you're a first-time guest, we are very thankful that you're with us this morning. This is our last sermon in a series that we've been in for a number of months in the book of Acts. We've titled this series, Thy Kingdom Come, God's Mission to the World, and we've looked at Acts chapter 1 through today, Acts chapter 15. And before I read our passage that we're going to look at this morning, I want to recap real quickly uh, what we've seen in the book of Acts. We've seen that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead in Acts chapter 1. He was about to ascend to the right hand of the Father and promises that the Holy Spirit will be sent to empower the followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and empowers the followers of Jesus to be His witnesses in the world from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. We've seen that God is building His kingdom, therefore His church through the followers of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And His church is a multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-generational community, a church made of Jew and Gentile, old and young, rich and poor, that is loving one another and loving God. We've seen that there's been opposition and persecution towards the church and Christians, and that through these trials and tribulation, God is bringing triumph and victory that the church of Jesus will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, and it's not an opposition from outside that is arising here in Acts chapter 15, but it is conflict from within. Acts chapter 15 is the first major fight within the church, inside the church. Surprise, surprise, if you didn't know, the church is not always perfect. It's not always a, a pretty place. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word, if you're able. This is Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is, re- he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that this morning you would speak to us, that God, we would see what the church should be, what the people of God should be like, a vision. You would help us to understand from Acts 15 what you might call us to be here on earth. Uh, Lord, we, we know that, uh, that relationships are hard. We know that being in intimate relationships, it's difficult. Uh, but Lord, we pray that uh, we would see it as so worth it. And you would make us a church and a community of people that, that love one another, and that enjoy being together, and that, that really reflect the kingdom that is to come on earth as it will one day be in heaven. Uh, we pray for this morning that you would open our, our eyes and uh, soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So when was the last time that you experienced having expectations for something uh, and you thought it was going to be incredible, but it, it failed to meet your expectations, or it was maybe just different than you expected. Now, I, I was single until I was 34 years old, and I wanted to be married for a number of years and had seen many of my friends get married, begin to have children, so I was excited, uh, needless to say, when God brought Rachel into my life. Now, I was a little bit older. Uh, I was not naive at the age of 34 to think that marriage was going to be wonderful every day. I knew that uh, every day was not going to be like our wedding day, right, where we're dressed up to the nines, looking good, laughing, dancing, singing, family and friends, this huge celebration. I I was not overly idealistic with marriage. I I knew I was a sinner. I knew Rachel was a sinner and that we would sin against one another And there would be hard days ahead. At least I knew it theoretically. Marriage is great, but marriage is also hard work. Uh, Rachel could say that she thought she knew who she was marrying to some degree, but the man she married was not all that she had expected, and marriage has not been everything she expected. In some ways, it's been better. Marriage has been better. In some ways, harder. I think that's true for most marriages. Now, marriage is one of the most prominent ways that Scripture speaks about Christ and the church. And I think the reality of marriage is the same for the Christian and the church. There can be an idealism with the church. We can read passages like Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 48, which we looked at earlier in this series, and we can have a vision of the church being a perfect place, that loves each other perfectly, we share all of our belongings, we're on this mission perfectly together. I think when we first become Christians, we learn, and we learn about the role and the importance of the church. Uh, As Christians, we can be like that newlywed who's very excited about marriage. And then reality sets in, and we begin to experience that it's actually better in some ways the, the church is, but it's more difficult, possibly, than we expected. And here's the truth. My marriage to Rachel, it's good. It's great. But 
when there are difficulties and arguments and tensions, I have realized it's because I'm a part of this marriage. (laughs) I hurt Rachel. I get impatient with her. I pull away when my feelings get hurt. And the same is true for the church. Even as a pastor of this church, I realize that there will be difficulties and tensions and arguments, and it will be because I am a part of it. I will hurt some of you. I will get impatient with some of you. And when my feelings get hurt, I might pull away. Now, marriage, for me, has actually gotten better every year. I've had the idealism knocked out of me and seen that it's hard at times, but I've learned what it means to love day in and day out, and that is better than I have expected it to be. I believe the same holds true for the church. That there will be hard times, there will be fights, but when we learn to be the church and love day in and day out, it is better than we expected it to be. Acts chapter 15 is the church's first big fight. And I want us to see three things from the first fight that I think that we need in order to be a healthy, vibrant church. We see it in three different people and their roles within this fight. We see it in Paul and his boldness to fight. We see it in Peter and his humility to listen. And lastly, we see it in James and his wisdom to lead. I believe in order to be a healthy, vibrant church, we need to be a people who have a boldness to fight, a humility to listen, and a wisdom to lead. Let me give you a quick context of where we are in the book of Acts, just as a reminder. Paul and Barnabas right now are in Antioch, and they are sharing about all that God had been doing among them through their missionary travels. The church had started in Jerusalem, and it was spreading throughout the world. And at this point in the life of the church, there are probably more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians. The gospel is bearing fruit in powerful ways among the Gentiles. The church was a multi-ethnic community of Jew and Gentile. And then verse 1 of chapter 15, it says that some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these Jewish Christians coming to mostly Gentile Christians and telling them that you cannot be saved unless you get the mark and sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. They're teaching that your identity as a Christian is signified by circumcision. Now, that is an issue of identity, right? How is one identified as a Christian? Or in other words, as those from Judea taught, how can one be saved? Now, I love verse 2. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. <laughs> had no small dissension. Right? In other words, they took the gloves off. <laughs> this was a throwdown, argument, debate, fight of all time. Now, this is my first point, and we see it with Paul. That people in the church, at times, will need to have boldness to fight. Paul fights, and he has it out with these men from Judea. Now, growing up as a little kid, kids can pick on one another at school, right? And kids can make fun of one another about a a number of things. But growing up, at least for a little boy, what is the number one thing that you just, you didn't go there. It was a no-no. Your mama, right? You don't talk about my mom. You can make fun of my clothes. 
You can make fun of how I missed a shot at recess, but you just, you can't talk about my mom. You talk about my mom, I'm going to take issue. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to fight, right? Paul is standing his ground. In Acts 15, he's taking an issue with what is going on here. Now, let me say this. There are very, very, very few things that we need to take the gloves off for in regards to the life of the church. Very few things that we need to have it out as, as a church, to have a huge fight over. But Paul was fighting over the very essence of the gospel and salvation. The foundation of Christianity was being undermined. The gospel was at stake. And Paul knew this was worth fighting for. See, this wasn't a fight over music preference. Right? That's too much horn. We need some more drums. We need, we need some more piano. Wasn't a fight over music. Wasn't a, wasn't a fight over small group models, over discipleship. It wasn't a fight over children's church or, or where we meet for worship on Sunday morning. This was a fight over Christian identity and how a person is saved. These men are saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. They're saying, unless you obey Mosaic law, Gentile Christians, then you won't be saved. In order to be marked out and identified as a Christian, you need circumcision. They are teaching salvation in Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus obedience to the law. And we've already seen in the book of Acts that God has declared throughout that the door of salvation is opened both to Jew and Gentile by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Paul knows that our identity as Christians is based on our union with Jesus by the Lord Jesus, by His grace, through faith. And for Paul, there was nothing more important than this gospel by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. This was a fight he was willing to have. Now, during the 1500s, the great reformer Martin Luther had been reading the book of Romans and Galatians, and he, he began to understand this gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that his identity and other people's identity was based solely on being united to Jesus, uh, and that happens by grace. In Jesus alone. And he began to, to preach this, teach this, write articles and books about this. And the church at the time called Martin Luther to trial for his teaching this gospel uh, that was counter to the way they were teaching it. And his teaching of, of this gospel was spreading rapidly throughout Europe. And so Luther was put on trial at the Diet of Worms. And he was asked to take back uh, into what he had been teaching and what he had been writing to, to claim that his teaching and writing was heresy. And Luther was given a day to think about, to come back and to take it back, to recant. And he was anxious and he was nervous as he was going to stand on trial. And then one of the most famous moments in church history, Luther before the Diet of Worms appears and he defends this gospel of grace and this gospel that brings freedom. And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. Luther knew this was worth fighting for. And thank God that Martin Luther stood his ground and was bold enough to fight for the gospel of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for here we are today, Christ Central, believing the same gospel. Now, this moment in Acts 15 
the first major fight, I might say, is bigger and more important than Martin Luther staying in the 1500s. Paul stands and he fights, and as John Calvin said, Christianity would have come to nothing if Paul would have yielded at this point. There would have been no Martin Luther if Paul would not have stood and fought here in Acts chapter 15. Now what these men from Judea are doing, and why Paul is so upset, is that they are adding to the gospel. Simple addition, simple math. It is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus. Now you know what Jesus plus produces, don't you? Legalism. Legalism. Legalism is requiring more and adding to the work of Jesus. Legalism is using the law of God improperly or abusing the law of God. And Paul speaks about this legalism here in Acts uh, in his book to the Galatians in in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes about these men from Judea and he says this, they are trying to bring them once again into slavery. Paul calls legalism slavery. Paul's saying the gospel brings freedom. Legalism brings bondage. Now before you slip into condemning these men from Judea, we must examine our own life. It's easy for all of us to fall into the trap of legalism. Every one of us can fall into this trap of adding to the gospel. Think of, again, think about identity. How do people talk about who really is a Christian in our Christian subculture? Who's really a Christian? Legalism creeps in when things like this are said. Real Christians raise their hands in worship. Or real Christians don't raise their hands and bow their head in worship. Right? Real Christians read their Bible every day. Real Christians go to prayer meetings. Real Christians spend time with the poor. Real Christians, you fill it in. Right? Passion and worship is great. Reading your Bible is a good thing. Prayer, needed. Spending time with the poor, a command. But they are not requirements to be a Christian. And legalism is when we start thinking that I'm a Christian based on my worship or my Bible reading or my prayer, or my heart for the poor, rather than resting solely on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus on my behalf. Legalism, it's binding. It's enslaving. In Christ Central Church, we need the boldness to fight for the right thing, the right thing, if we're going to be a healthy church and a vibrant church. We need a boldness to fight for the gospel that brings freedom. A gospel that doesn't add anything to Jesus, but rests solely upon Jesus alone. And you know the reason that this gospel brings freedom, it's because it's salvation by grace. By grace meaning, I heard Timothy ask this morning, what is grace to the children uh, going through the communicants class? Grace is, it's unearned. You haven't earned it. You haven't done anything to achieve this salvation in Jesus. And legalism is subtle and it's enticing. Because all of us here, in some way or another, want to earn and work for what we get. All of us do. All of us have difficulty receiving a free gift. Think about when you receive something freely. If you've ever been given something freely, don't you deep down go, what's the switch? (laughs) What's the catch? Right? They're going to come back and ask for something. Right? We always think we have to earn 
what we're given. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's free. It is a free offer of salvation. It's the hymn that we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And may we be a church that fights and has the boldness to fight for this gospel. Peter and Barnabas, I don't know if you picked up on it, are actually persuaded by these men from Judea as they teach this gospel plus, right? They're persuaded. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes about this encounter with with Peter and actually mentions Barnabas. Listen to Galatians chapter 2 about this encounter here in Antioch. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, right? He was with one of us. He was with us. But then he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Even Barnabas was led astray. Peter and Barnabas led astray by these men from Judea. So Paul has it out with Peter and he opposes Peter to his face. Now back to our passage in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to go back to where the church began to meet with the council of elders and apostles in order to settle this dispute. Verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This was a council. This is what we call in our denomination a presbytery meeting. This was a gathering of many leaders in the church. And just a side note, this is why we believe there is power and wisdom in having many leaders decide an issue. So here here it is, a council, a presbytery meeting. And then verse 7 says, After much debate about the gospel, (laughs) not about petty, minor things that the church today can often argue about, but about the gospel, Peter, the one who was fearing men from Judea, and Paul opposes to his face, this same Peter stands up and he says to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Verse 10, why are you placing a yoke, placing bondage upon the Gentiles' disciples? Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I don't know if you picked up on what happened. I referenced Galatians chapter 2. Paul is opposing Peter to his face. And now in Acts chapter 15, there's much debate on the floor of Presbytery before this council of apostles and elders. And Peter changes his view and then defends Paul's stance on the gospel. Peter was opposing Paul, but then is convinced by Paul and then defends Paul before this council. Now, Peter is not often this type of a man, but here, Peter shows us a man who is humble enough to listen. And that's what the church needs in order to be a healthy, vibrant church. It's my second point. A humility to listen. If you've ever been in an argument with someone before, and they catch you off guard, and they say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. What, is, what happens when someone does that to you? If that's ever happened to you, completely deflates the argument, doesn't it? it? It takes the fight out of it and creates kind of a love rather than division. 
And it takes humility to admit you're wrong. And I don't know about you, but I know I can be arrogant and uh, hard-headed. There are times that I may know I'm wrong, but I still want to win the argument. I'm still going to fight. That's what's called a lack of humility. But, uh, but Peter here is defending himself before a council, listens to Paul, convinced that Paul is right, changes his own stance, and then defends Paul. That is unbelievable humility. And I need, and we need, that amount of humility. Now, listen, Peter is able to change his view on no requirement of, circ- of circumcision before these apostles, these elders, these leaders in Jerusalem, because of the very gospel that Paul is preaching. Peter finds his identity and his security in Jesus, not in how he appears before these men, but rest in God's approval of him. See, if we really fight for this gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, it produces a freedom to say I was wrong and a humility to say that in front of others. It produces a willingness to listen. Now, church, we're going to have many misunderstandings in our community and relationships. I realized in the past 10 years of ministry just how complicated people are in general, how complicated I am, and how easy it is to misunderstand one another. We are complicated people. But put on top of that, that we want to be a church that is multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-generational. And I have realized in the past two years of this church plan, just how much more race and class run deep and weaves in and out of everything and impacts everyone, whether we say it or not. And so we need to be a people who are humbled enough by the love of Christ, humbled enough by the grace of Christ, who are willing to listen to one another despite cultural differences, despite social differences, even theological differences. We've looked at Paul and Peter, and I want us to end by looking at James. James, who is the brother of Jesus, appears to be the leader of this church in Jerusalem. Now let me tell you a little bit about James, if you don't know much about him. James did not follow Jesus, his brother, during Jesus' public ministry. It was not until after the crucifixion that James believed and followed Christ. And James was not a naturally wise person, but then he writes the epistle James, and in James chapter 1, it's a great chapter on wisdom. See, James was one of the most prominent leaders of the early church. He was a pillar of the church and was actually nicknamed Camel Knees. That's a good nickname, Camel Knees. Why? Because he prayed so much, was on his knees so much that his knees became hardened looking like Camel Knees. No wonder James became a leader of the church. No wonder he became a leader with great wisdom. Acts chapter 15, verse 12, says the assembly fell silent after listening to Paul and Barnabas. After they finished speaking, verse 13, James replies. And he starts with brothers, term of endearment, term of love. Then he calls Peter Simeon. And then he quotes the prophet Amos in verses 16 to 17. 
Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And it's a vision that Amos had of the church. It is a vision of God's kingdom, the fully restored kingdom of God. It's a kingdom made of Jew, the restoration of Israel, and Gentile, those who will be called by his name. So catch this, church. James, the one who misunderstood Jesus' identity, is now finding his identity in Jesus and in being part of this kingdom that has Jew and Gentile. James, in the midst of this debate and this fight, uses the final vision of God's kingdom to call himself and others into what should define their lives. In other words, James is saying, it's not your history, it's not your preference, it's not your vi- the vision of your own life that defines you, but it's what Jesus is doing in this world, the kingdom of God that defines you. And then that's what James uses to lead both the Jew and the Gentile in this fight. James has incredible wisdom to lead the church. And that's my last point. We don't only need people who have a boldness to fight and a humility to listen, but we need people with a wisdom to lead within the church. You know, there, there are definitely people who are absolutists. Absolutists. They make things absolutely about one thing in an argument. Right? Absolutists oversimplify things. Right? When an argument happens, an absolutist claims it's about this one thing, right? It's this one thing this fight's about. An absolutist in Acts chapter 15 might come into this debate and go, well, this fight is all about race. That's what it's all about. It's all about race. Difference in Jew and Gentile. Or an absolutist could come in and go, well, this is all about a theological belief. Right? Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's all about one thing. Now, maybe you oversimplify and you can be an absolutist. Or maybe you've been in an argument with one before. Uh, and you're thinking, if you're not an absolutist, that you could come into this argument in Acts chapter 15 and you'd go, yeah, okay, race is definitely part of this. Theological view, definitely a part of this, but it's way more complicated than just one thing. Though there's a very big theological issue at stake, James does not oversimplify and say this debate is solely about that one issue. I heard someone say that wisdom is the ability to see reality in all of its perplexities. The ability to see reality in all of its perplexities. There are theological differences going on here. Cultural differences, missional differences, how they want to approach doing ministry, even ethical differences between Jew and Gentile. And James is reminding all of them, Jew and Gentile, of the vision of God's kingdom and rooting them in their identity of being part of this kingdom. Look at verse 19. He says, we should not trouble, this is him presiding over the court, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not add and burden them. He's asking the Jews, give a little bit. Move towards the Gentiles. And then in verse 20, but the Gentiles should not should abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, food strangled, and and blood. James is also asking the Gentiles to give a little, to move towards the Jews. See what James is, is doing here? 
He is calling each of them to sacrifice for the sake of love, for the sake of the church, for the sake of their brother and their sister, for the sake of God's mission in the world. Both of them would have to give and sacrifice a little bit. See, if Jews burdened Gentiles with the Mosaic law, then they would always feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom. So James says, don't burden them. And then if Gentiles just lived however they wanted to and were not aware of Jewish custom and law, then the Jews would never be able to associate with them. It would have been way too much to overcome. Unbelievable wisdom by James and his leadership. He is giving a common vision of the kingdom of God to be what defines Jew and Gentile. And then based off that identity, asking each one of them to sacrifice for the sake of love to the other. Christ said, for we need this type of wisdom. The ability to to see that oftentimes our differences that will arise are very complex. Many things are at play and at work, and if we try to oversimplify and claim they're about one thing, then we invalidate the other person as someone with multiple complexities and layers that are happening within every one of us. We must always have before us a common vision, a body that is united because we're united to Jesus, and we have the promise of being Jew and Gentile, a multi-ethnic community for all of eternity. That's our ultimate identity, church. That's your ultimate identity, not your political preference, not your social agenda, even your missional preference as a church. It is who we are in Christ, God's multi-ethnic community that should lead us in wisdom to love one another, which means you will have to sacrifice for one another. Each, each one of you, myself included, will need to give a little, to give of preference, to give of style, to give on culture, to give a little for the sake of loving your brother and your sister. I've described uh, to people Rachel and I's marriage in this way, or long marriage of three years, but I've described it in this way. There was a period of time when uh, I was so strong that Rachel just kind of went along with me. She just kind of went, went with me. And I thought it was, this is nice. <laughs> and then there was a period of time when Rachel began to speak up and have a voice. And my feelings got hurt. And I pulled back and retreated. And then there's a period of time when Rachel speak up and I could listen and I didn't pull away. We could have it out. We could take the gloves off, have a fight, and keep going. A few Sundays ago, Rachel and I had a dinner, just us two, and we were at the dinner table in our home, and we just started talking. We kind of threw everything out on the table, things that were bothering us, from little things to big things. And in listening, I realized, okay, dummy, stop doing some things, start doing some things. And I, and I realized I'm still learning, and we'll always still be learning, to love my wife in the way that she needs to be loved. And after talking and, and listening and being willing hopefully to change for her sake. Uh, I will tell you that I was not only loving my wife in that moment, love is a verb, but I felt more love toward my wife after we had this talk. And when you get married, you don't envision that as love. You envision late night walks on the beach, right? Uh, candlelit dinners, 
right? Happy family, and those things are good. But what I just described is also better. It's better than I expected. Relationships, marriage, the church, community relationships will require hard work, honest conversations, listening. And when we are willing to work at it, we will experience a love unexpected. Church, I love our community. I love who God has brought to this church and and what He is doing, and I hope for more, hope for much more. I love seeing many of you fight for the gospel in your own life and the life of city groups and the life of our church. I've heard many of you, or seen many of you rather, listen to one another, want to learn about the other. I've seen many of you lead with wisdom. I believe this is happening, but I also know That our community is not always what you might have expected it to be. Or what you've always hoped it would be. It's not what I've always expected or hoped it would be either. Which means we need to do the hard work of loving one another. Spending time with one another. Listening to one another. Inviting one another into our homes. We need to sacrifice for the sake of one another. And I promise you, even though it's hard, it is better if we do this. It's better than we expected have to allow our union with Jesus and our participation in the kingdom of God to define us. Then we can be a people who have a boldness to fight, a humility to listen, and a wisdom to lead. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us, Lord God, to be the people of God that you have created us to be. God, help us to fight for the gospel of grace. Jesus plus nothing. Lord, help us to be a people that have the humility that we listen to one another and we give and we sacrifice and we lead with wisdom. Lord, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.